Well, uh, if you don't mind, let's um, let's start off this morning just asking the Lord to help us. Let's just praying on where the Lord would give light to His words. So let's pray that He would do that this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time of gathering to study Your Word, to study the truth of Your Word, and I pray for Your blessing over this teaching, over this moment of studying this incredible doctrine of how we come into a right relationship with You exclusively by your grace. We're grateful, Lord Jesus. Lord, bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my one of my uh, evangelical heroes, as you've probably heard if you've been here any length of time, is Jerry Bridges. And Jerry Bridges, um, if you've never read him, wrote a number of books on a number of different Christian topics. He wrote one book uh, called The Great Exchange. And I'm going to steal, basically, his title uh, for the title of this message. Uh, this exchange uh, is something that is, is present throughout the scriptures. It's a, it's a very profound trade that takes place between two parties. And it is, we might even say, at the center of the doctrines of grace. Uh, Martin Luther was credited as having said that the article of justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. And J.I. Packer has said that atonement, which is the other side of this exchange, is the very heart of our gospel. Now, I, I think that means that we need to give particular attention to these two ideas. And if you're tracking through the historic acronym of TULIP, uh, this is the L, the, the, the limited atonement, which I'm not crazy about that phrasing, but this is the topic that that's trying to to remind us of this this idea that there is an exchange that takes place according to the Bible and that is how someone comes into a right relationship with God it's a great exchange now we all understand exchanges you take one thing and you put it in place of another thing we understand that basic idea we exchange things all the time we exchange money for example and we get food at the grocery store we exchange this. We exchange even uh, in a chemical kind of way. We, we exchange fuel and we get heat in exchange. We give one thing and we get another. Things are exchanged. That's the idea. Well, in the Bible, there is a very profound type of exchange that is the basis for our entire salvation. And it's an exchange of grace. I, wanna, I want to ask five questions about this exchange to maybe help us understand what it is and why it's so valuable to us. First of all, what is exchanged? If you have your Bibles, uh, I want you to turn to Romans 3, because we're going to spend most of our time there in Romans 3, but I want to read to you uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, because this is maybe the most succinct uh, summation of the exchange. If my memory serves, I think this was Jerry Bridges' uh, favorite verse uh, about the Gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or if you want to read in Romans 3, Paul says this, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, very important word, justified by His grace as a gift, and here's the exchange, 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means sacrifice, uh, pacifying or fulfilling the wrath of God by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might become just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so... What is exchanged according to the doctrines of grace? What is exchanged? Two things. The record of sin and the record of righteousness. They are exchanged. That's the idea. So we have a a record of sin. All of our sins, we might think of them as a record. There is a chronicle of them. If you could write down every sin you've ever committed and every sin you don't even know you've ever committed, every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every selfish moment, every arrogant moment, every lustful moment, every desperate, uh, idolatrous moment, if you, could, if you could write them all down, it would constitute the record of your sin. Quite a depressing thought, isn't it? You could write it all. That's the record of your sin. And if you could write down all of Jesus' obedience, all of His faithfulness towards God, his servant-heartedness, his generosity, his kindness of speech, his boldness, his courage, his uh, humility. If you could write all of that down, that would be a record of his righteousness. What Paul is saying in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, and he says this in Galatians, is that there is, a, there is an exchange that takes place. And very important word that you want to remember and memorize is imputation. Imputation, it, it's, a, it's a reformed word. It means that God credits or counts one record in the name column of another. Imputation. So we would say, for example, that Christ is imputed with our sin. Our sin was credited to Him. And His righteousness was credited to us. This is the great exchange. That this endless record of our sin was taken and accounted as if it had been Christ. His name was written across that record. And His record of righteousness was accounted to us. That's the great exchange. There is a righteousness, Paul says, that does not come from someone earning it or working for it. It is given to them. That's the idea of justification, that you have a record before God that is right before Him. The word justification has the same root as the word righteousness. It's this idea that you, you have a, a righteous standing, an account of righteousness before God. And yet, somehow, there had to be an accounting for our sin as well, so that accounting was credited to Christ. That's the whole idea of, of Christ paying the penalty for our sin. In uh, Christ, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, He made Him to be sin. So identified was Jesus with sin that Paul even calls Him sin itself. It was as though Christ was covered by our sin as if He had personal responsibility for it. So those are the two things exchanged. His righteousness is credited to us, and our sin is credited to Him. If that were not the case, it would have been a, a failure of God, if I can dare use that phrase, for Christ to die. The only way that Christ dying was legally allowable under God's covenant was if He was credited with our sin. 
The only reason he could suffer the separation from God, the curse of death, was if he was paying for something not his own. So that imputation was the basis for his death. It's also the basis for our standing before God. That is exchanged, the record of sin and the record of righteousness. Second question, what is the result of the exchange? What is the result? Let's read again uh, Romans 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's the result for us. Are justified by His grace as a gift. So we have this righteous standing before God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's the curse for lawbreakers, for sinners by becoming a curse for us when he died on the cross. So here's the result of this exchange. Condemnation for Christ and justification for his people. That's the result. What is exchanged is our record of sin and his righteousness. The result of that exchange is that Christ is condemned and we are counted righteous before God. That's the idea. So this this legal record is transferred. What happens? God looks at Christ, he sees him as an atrocious sinner, and he condemns him on the cross. He looks at us, he sees us as an an overwhelmingly, uniquely obedient one, according to our new record, and he welcomes us into his arms. So the result of the exchange is condemnation for Christ and justification for for his people. That's why Paul will say, we are justified. We have a right standing before God. And he'll say repeatedly, not because we have done works that constitute that standard, but because it has been given to us. What is exchanged? The record of sin and the record of righteousness. They are exchanged. So are the consequences of those records, the condemnation for Christ and justification for his people. Who are the participants in the exchange. Now we get into some of the, the deep waters of Reformed theology and where there's been great debate over the centuries. Who are the participants in the exchange? Well, the first participant, it seems quite clear, and nobody disagrees with, is Christ. Christ is certainly on one side of the exchange. He is the only one who has righteousness sufficient to save. So he must be involved, or we don't have any doctrine of salvation whatsoever. So he is the first participant in the exchange. But what about the other side? Who participates? Who receives the credit of the righteousness of Christ? And whose sin is imputed to Christ such that he paid for it and suffered for it? Well, the Bible and Reformed theology says... That Christ's people and Christ are the two recipients of this exchange, the two participants of this exchange. So that Christ's righteousness is credited to his people alone, and the sinful and condemnation that takes place because of sinners is credited to Christ only on behalf of his people alone. And it's not difficult to see why Reformed theologians have said this is the case. First of all, there's a number of verses that speak to Christ died for his people. He gave himself up for her, it says in Ephesians. 
the, the idea is that for those whom God had chosen to be saved, Christ would receive their record of sin, they would receive his record of righteousness. It's also understandable to see why if people were given the record of righteousness that are not God's people, how then can they not receive entrance into heaven? So there is actually a heresy that would state that the righteousness of Christ is ultimately given to every human being. That he, he basically stands in for every man, woman, and child ever born and created and that by that righteousness they gain entrance into heaven. Whether they believe in her or not, or not whether they're counted as a Christian or not, that they receive that imputation. He paid for their sin. But, Reformed theology and scriptures would say, no, no, this was a limited exchange. Only those uh, who uh, are God's people actually receive the righteousness. And if you understand, this, this, is, this um, would not make any sense of the doctrine of hell or God's judgment, which is throughout the scriptures, if this was not the case. So just to tease out the logic a little bit. If every human being is credited with the righteousness of Christ, then how can those human beings ultimately be condemned? If Christ was credited with the sinfulness of all of those human beings, then how can they ultimately be condemned? If this exchange is universal, or even in a preparatory way universal, then how can God ultimately condemn sinners who have been paid for already in Christ? How can God uh, receive people into heaven unless they are credited with that righteousness of Christ. The idea is only Christ and his people receive and are the participants in this exchange. Now this gets to the idea of limited atonement. Let me read a, a quote from D.A. Carson. If you haven't read the book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, I would recommend it. Uh, it speaks to the way the Bible speaks of God's love, which is why a number of people have a, a deep problem with this doctrine. Uh, they, they struggle with this idea that Christ died only effectively for his people. That effectively this imputation was not universal. Even though I think that position presents an incredible uh, logical difficulty for anybody who would, who would hold to it. Carson says this, The issue is not merely one of logic dependent on election. Those who defend definite atonement cite texts. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21, not everyone. Christ gave himself for us, i.e., for the people of the new covenant, Titus 2.14, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Moreover, in his death, Christ did not merely make adequate provision for the elect, but he actually achieved the desired result. Romans 5, 6-10, Ephesians 2, 15-16. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, Isaiah 53, 10-12. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now the objection to this uh, might focus primarily on a number of verses that talk about how God loved the world and even that Christ died for the sins of the world. 
And so people rightly raise the objection, well, if, if Christ effectively died paying the penalty for his people, what do these verses mean that say he died for the world? How, how do we consider those verses? For example, you have John um, 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or you have 1 John 2, 2, even more direct. He is the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so rightly they say, well, okay, well, well how, how can this be true? How can this be true? All right, a couple of things. First of all, we, we want to appreciate the consequences if we decide that Jesus paid for the sins of the entire world. That his sacrifice God was actually punishing him for the sins of every person who ever lived. We want to consider the consequences of that. The consequences of that are, God literally punished Jesus for those sins, and then he will punish those sinners again when they refuse to believe in him, unless you reject the doctrine of hell entirely. It would also hypothetically mean that they have been credited with the righteousness of Christ, since that exchange is always... uh, multi-directional in the scriptures and yet having been imputed that righteousness they do not gain entrance into the kingdom of God or perhaps an even more dangerous and deadly idea that that imputation having been given can be reversed that people receive this imputation and then God reverses it that somehow he removes the imputation of condemnation on Christ for some people and not for others. But that would leave uh, the faith of Christians in serious jeopardy. Well, then if he can reverse it for some, then why not for all? And the language of the New Testament seems to say this, this transaction is final. It is once and for all. So what does it mean then? How are we to understand, since there's great trouble in believing that Christ actually effectively died, that he actually was imputed the sins of all people everywhere. And as 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. How are we to understand that if some of those people in the world categorically are ultimately going to be judged by God? How are we to understand that? Well, typically, Reformed theologians have said, if you read John carefully, It is quite possible, and this is true throughout the New Testament, that the word all in those passages does not mean all without exception, but all without distinction. Very important difference. So, for example, we we use this kind of language all the time. We we would say, you think of a a sci-fi movie, where somebody uh, is facing a, a pandemic, and they come up with a way to take... Uh, a large remnant of humanity uh, into space to a space station. They say, we've saved the world. We've saved humanity. Well, they don't mean, of course, they've saved them without exception. They mean they've saved them without distinction. Or they might mean we've saved them representatively. So we even use, even in modern day, we would use that kind of language. Uh, we've, we've saved the world. You might think of a, a, a president or a king or a premier or somebody who... who accomplishes a peace treaty halfway through the hostilities from one nation to another says we've we've saved our youth we've accomplished peace well he doesn't mean of course he's saved them without 
exception. He means he saved them without distinction. He saved them representatively. And many, many theologians would say that that probably most likely is what John is referring to. He's combating not the idea that there are people that will ultimately face God's judgment and go to hell. He's combating a, a, an, an idea of superiority that God sent Christ to save just a particular kind of people and not other kinds of people. He's saying, no, perhaps you could think of maybe those who were Jews who had a view of superiority for themselves, or maybe Gnostics in the first century, that they would say, well, no, Christ died for us, for us only. And John says, no, he didn't. He died for the whole world. As if he would say, no, he didn't just die for black people or white people or Jews or, or Baptists or Presbyterians. No, he, he died for the sins of the world. He, he died for all different kinds of people. That's the point the Reformed theologians would say. John is trying to make this. He died for all without distinction, but not all without exception. We could also say that since Christ was who he was, it is right to say that his death is sufficient for all, but only efficient for the elect. Very helpful phrase. So hypothetically, if it had been in the purposes of God wise for there to never be a human being who faced condemnation ultimately for their sin, would there have needed to be an additional person who suffered on the cross? No, Reformed theologians would say no. Christ's death was sufficient because of who he was to pay for anyone that God chose to save. So if you're looking at the question from a hypothetical standpoint, could Christ's death have been sufficient to save anyone? Yes, it was sufficient to save anyone. But did the sins of everyone actually get imputed to Christ when he died on the cross? Well, no. And, and even the logic of God's knowledge, where he knows past, present, and future. He knows who would believe in him makes that sense. Why, why would God punish Christ for the sins of those that he knows ultimately will not believe in him? Carson talks about the love of God this way, very, very helpfully. He says, I argue then that both Arminians, Arminians are those who claim a number of different things, but one of the things they claim is that Christ died, literally paid for the sins of everyone, and it is up to them to receive that sacrifice on their behalf. And Calvinists or Reformed theologians argue against that as impugning the justice of God and putting salvation ultimately in the hands of man. They say, no, that, that can't be the case. I understand that if there's a mystery here, how can we preach the gospel to all and offer it freely to all the way the Bible tells us to, even though we know that only some of those have actually uh, been paid for by the death of Christ? Well, we do that in trusting ourselves to the greater wisdom of God. Arminians would argue with that, but Carson says this, I argue then that both Arminians and Calvinists should rightly affirm that Christ died for all in the sense that Christ's death was sufficient for all and that Scripture portrays God as inviting, commanding, and desiring the salvation of all out of love. Further, all Christians ought also to confess that in a slightly different sense, Christ Jesus, in the intent of God, died effectively, in other words, he actually died for the elect alone, in line with the way that the Bible speaks of God's special selecting love for the elect. Many times, uh, this is true in other doctrines as well, uh, heresies spring up when you're confronted with mystery that you are unwilling to accept. 
Most heresies spring up that way. So people confront this idea, well, I, I, don't, I don't like the idea that God already knew what sins he was punishing when Christ died. Because I don't, I don't like the idea that I could be talking to someone who is not ultimately going to be saved, even if I'm sharing the gospel with them. And yet there is a point at which we have to surrender the mystery of salvation into the hands of God who knows more than we do. Is it true that the Bible speaks of God's love in a general sense for all of humanity? Yes, it is true. And there are verses like that that can be very uncomfortable for Reformed theologians that they need to accept. That's what Carson is saying. There is a sense in which God loves everyone. And there is a sense in which he does desire, some, in some mysterious way, God simultaneously desires all to be saved, and yet chooses to save only some. Now, that, there you're confronted with the mystery of, how can that be true? I, I don't know, but the Bible says both of those things. And Carson would urge us to neither minimize God's general love for all. It is right to say to any person you meet, God loves you and He desires you to be saved. That is not out of bounds from the Reformed theology of election. It is also right to say that Christ died effectively, certainly, without uh, any question for the sins of His people and not for the sins of every person who ever lived. Though the blood of Christ Christ would have been sufficient to pay for any sinner that was united to Him, and the righteousness of Christ would have been a perfect righteousness for any sinner, since God knows the past, present, and future, the blood of Christ actually and effectively paid for the sins of His people, those who would believe in Him, those chosen and called by the Spirit of God. This leads to a fourth question. Is the exchange always successful? Is the exchange always successful? We want to understand what is exchanged. We want to understand the result of the exchange. We want to understand uh, that the exchange, uh, who, who are the participants in the exchange. And then we want to ask, is the exchange always successful? This speaks to what we were just referring to. If Christ died generally for all, his death in that sense was not effective for some of the people he died for. But if Christ died uniquely for those chosen to be saved, then there is a certainty that those he died for will certainly be reconciled to God. You could look at a number of passages that would speak to this, but Hebrews, I think, says this as effectively as anywhere. Listen to this passage. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. I will put my law on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, there's the exchange, his blood rather than ours, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw, new, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is able to save, the writer of Hebrews says, to the uttermost 
those who have believed in him. Charles Spurgeon says, He did not die to make men savable, but to save them. He did not die to make men savable. He did not merely die to make salvation available, but to certainly purchase his people. Salvation is not just an opportunity. It is a certainty in the ultimate eternal vision of God. What Christ set out to accomplish will be accomplished. You can get this sense even from uh, Ephesians 53, if you read about the exchange there. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It says at the end, he will be apportioned the reward of the great. There's this sense that he will receive the reward that he he died to receive. It will take place. The Father will not allow. Jesus even says, all who come to me will not be cast out. There's a, there's a certainty about salvation, a certainty about His atonement, that this will definitely take place, that it is to the eternal credit of the Son that all those who believe in Him will certainly receive the benefits of this exchange. You might say that, that if we were to believe the exchange is unsuccessful, we would be demeaning the effectiveness, the effectiveness of God the Son or the power of the Holy Spirit or the plan of God the Father. Reformed theologians absolutely refuse to believe that that is the case. Those whom Christ died for will absolutely receive the benefits of this exchange. So the exchange is always successful. Another reason why we hold to this idea, though it is troublesome for many, and offensive to some that Christ died only for his people because the Bible speaks very definitely that those he died for will definitely be saved ultimately. Is the exchange always successful? Yes, he did not die just to make men savable, but to save them. Finally, what is the basis for the exchange? What is the basis for the exchange? This is where we can go back uh, to a number of passages, but Romans 3 uh, says this very, very clearly. All of sin fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. They're justified by His grace as a gift. What, what is the, the motive and the basis, the means, by which this exchange takes place? This might be one of the great disagreements between the Reformed Church and Catholicism. This might be one of the great disagreements. If you talk to a knowledgeable Catholic theologian and you say, what righteousness by which do we have right standing before God? They will say the righteousness of Christ. They will not disagree with that. And sometimes Reformed uh, Christians are surprised by that. I, th I, thought we, I thought we disagreed about that <laughs> by faith and works, right? I thought we had totally... No, they will say the righteousness of Christ. It, it is not that Christ's righteousness is not the standing before God in Catholic theology. It's the means by which and the way in which that righteousness is given to us. For Catholic theology, the righteousness of Christ is not imputed merely... It is also imparted to us. You might think of it as it is poured into us and it can also leak out of us. Right? So you might think of uh, who we are as kind of a, a bucket with holes. 
we receive the righteousness of Christ, and then as we sin and neglect the sacraments of the church, the righteousness leaks out of us. It's not just a record, it is an, an actual content of righteousness. Reformed theologians said, no, no, that is not the case, that is not the case. We are not dependent on the sacraments of the church to maintain and hold on to the righteousness of Christ. It is not just that Christ has a righteousness that we can partake of. No, it is a record once for all accredited to his people which cannot be lost or diminished in any way. So that a person when they first come to Christ are just as justified as they will be in the millionth year in heaven. They are no more righteous before God now than they will be then. They are no more then than they will be now. They are irrevocably righteous in their standing before God. They are not less righteous in standing when they sin, not more righteous when they go to church. They are not more righteous when they take communion. They are not more righteous after they're baptized. They are just as righteous in their standing before God from the moment of their conversion to the end of eternity. That's the Reformed doctrine of righteousness because it is received by grace through faith. Here's why this is important. What compels God to grant this exchange? Aaron spoke about this last week. This is just reiterating what he said. What compels God to grant this exchange? Well, Paul says repeatedly, grace. In other words, the giving of something undeserved. God doesn't grant an exchange to people he thinks are worthy. He grants the exchange to people he knows are unworthy. He doesn't grant his record of righteousness to those who are better than those around them. He grants them to those who have no hope of any righteousness in themselves. This is the entire point of the first half of Galatians. There is no righteousness by works of the law. Neither is there the choice of God to grant righteousness because you are better than your sister, your neighbor, your mother, your daughter. No, it is by grace. It is a giving that is completely undeserved. It is not even uh, taking your works or your righteousness, future or past, into account. It has no basis in our works. This righteousness is given exclusively by the undeserved grace of God. A giving that is undeserved. And... Not only that, but the means of receiving it is not a work either. You can see how we try to smuggle in, smuggle in our own credit into salvation. But Paul said, no, the basis for us receiving this is the grace of God. The means is not a, an act on our part. Again, where we would disagree with Catholic theologians, say there's a, there is a means, and that is... Primarily, the sacraments of the church. As you partake in the sacraments of the church, you receive the grace of God. You would say, no, the means of receiving God's grace is faith. And faith is that thing that receives. It doesn't take, it receives. It is literally a stepping outside of any credit to yourself and receiving only what God has done. It is a gift in and of itself. Faith itself is not a work. It is a receiving from God. So what is the basis? It's grace. What's the means? Faith. The point of this is the exchange and the glory for it goes entirely to the Lord. God has taken the salvation, the ultimate salvation of man, 
entirely out of our unsteady and unworthy hands, taking it upon himself from first to last, and given himself the ultimate responsibility for saving sinners. It is by grace through faith, so that our attendance at church, our taking of communion, our reading of our Bible, our listening to good sermons, our history of good works, they are not the means by which God gives this exchange. They are not the basis for it. It is exclusively by grace through faith. That's why the Reformed mantra was, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Alone, for the glory of God alone. This is the exchange. What is exchanged? Our sin and His righteousness. Who participates? Christ and His people. Is the exchange always successful? Yes, always successful. What is the basis? Grace and faith. So that... It is for the glory of God alone. This is the idea that's contained in that very unhelpfully worded, I think, word, limited atonement. The idea is that God has given a definite and effective salvation in exchange to his people in the death and the righteousness of Christ that secures them eternally before him.